Welcome to the Organizing Ideas podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Karen. And we're two new librarians and your hosts for this podcast. Together, we're taking a closer look at the relationships between organizing information and community organizing. We are recording today on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Today, our guests are Ian Henninger and Ted Lee, who are going to be talking with us about precarious work in libraries and archives. Maybe to start us off, do you want to each tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. <laughs> and fight over who goes first. <laughs> so uh, my name is Ted Lee. I'm a second year PhD student at the UBC High School, um, and I'm studying archives and uh, the history of professionalization in archives and its connections to the way that archival labor is organized today. And my name is Ian. I'm on contract as a liaison librarian with Simon Fraser University. And I am doing a research project, I guess, on precarious work with three of my colleagues. Uh, so that's part of the reason for my interest in this topic. Yeah, do you want me to talk about like why I'm researching? And I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm always curious, like mm-hmm. how you got to like the field. Like the first episode, Alice and I talked about like why we chose librarianship because growing up, I definitely did not want to be a librarian. Mm-hmm. I got well. So the reason why I got into archives is because I got an anthro, uh, an undergrad in anthropology. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> it's like anthropology is great. Anyway, um, it's like my first love, my first academic love. But as I was looking at grad schools, I was like, "There's like no money in anthropology, unfortunately." So I was looking. I literally. Just so you chose archival studies. I I combed <laughs> through like all the different like graduate program websites in the state of Washington, and I found Western Washington's like archival. Archives and Records Management program, master's program, and it said that they were like, we have like an 86% um, job placement rate. And I was like, that sounds great. So like I signed up, I didn't know anything about archives. I came <laughs> in and I was like, this is really cool. I, I like old stuff, but uh, it's more than old stuff, obviously. But like, yeah. Um, the reason why I started looking at precarious labor, that wasn't my plan when I was looking, when I got into the PhD program. I was thinking about looking at like personal records and personal archives and things like that. but. I was in close contact with my cohort, uh, my old cohort from the master's program, and kind of watching them in our group chat struggle to find any kind of like long-term work. Um, I think the first year that I was in my PhD program, like one of my cohort, uh, one of the people in my cohort, like um, they had to, they switched, um, like they moved to like three different cities chasing contract jobs just mm-hmm. during that year, right? and. Um, and at the same time, I was taking um, a, a class on personal archives with Jennifer Douglas, and we were talking about in the class, like, who is doing a lot of this kind of work in the archives? And it turns out, you know, most of the core, what we would call the core archival functions, like description, um, reference, you know, arrangement, um, even appraisal, like, some of, a lot of that work is now being done by contract workers and student workers, and it was like, then what are the archivists doing, right? And so that, that got me curious into like, wait, who is doing the work, and how is it being organized, and you know, and, and looking at the experiences of my colleagues in the, in the like practicing side of archives, I was like, oh, there's something weird going on. Like something is very wrong. Mm-hmm. 
How about you, Ian? How did you get mm-hmm. into studying this topic? Yeah, I think for me, I definitely fell into it almost by accident. Um, I think like Ted, it grew out of sort of conversations and observations I was uh, experiencing both in my own life and looking at other people's lives. Uh, I didn't even think I was going to be a researcher. Like that's a sort of identity I sort of took up pretty recently. Uh, When I first got into libraries, I thought I wanted to be a public librarian and so spent my entire master's degree being like, yeah, public libraries, public libraries. And then got my degree, wanted to stick around Vancouver and SFU was hiring. And so that sort of got me on this academic track. And uh, not just a few months after we started, I think, um, I was talking with some coworkers uh, just about, you know, the job search, contract life, all those kinds of things. And we were kind of like, there's not much information about this out there or really accessible to other people. And so I think that sort of started us off on this on this process um started us uh got us started like pulling job postings from the internet doing interviews with people about precarious work and sort of uh giving voice to those experiences uh both for ourselves and for other people cool okay so let's take a step back Mm -hmm. can one of you take a stab at defining precarious work for us Mm -hmm. I mean, I can think of one uh, definition that I quite like from a article on precarity. It was looking at precarity at a very sort of a high level, um, but it refers to precarity as a state of material and psychological vulnerability. And so that could be in the in the work context. It could also refer to other forms of precarity um, in terms of you know housing, security, things like that. Uh, but I think it's really interesting to apply to this context of precarious work. Uh, just the idea that it's a state of vulnerability. Precarious work makes people more vulnerable to uh, financial shocks, to sort of economic pressures, um, certainly to sort of social isolation, uh, difficulties, sort of maintaining commitments, things like that. So I think it's a very sort of broad definition. Um, It's useful for a lot of different uh, approaches, both looking at the material side of things and the, the psychological side, the mental impacts. Yeah, I would agree. It's <clears throat> like um, precarity is often kind of considered as like short-term contract work, um, where the worker doesn't have a really clear, defined relationship or stable relationship with their employer. Is I think usually kind of the the job definition of like a precarious job. But um, like Ian said, it's also connected to like the idea of like um, access to resources. Really, is like a big thing, um, and also. Um, kind of access to obligation, like the reason why employers more and more are turning towards hiring contract work and like student work and things like that is because they don't have any kind of legal or economic obligation to take care of their workers, right? And so um, there is kind of that access to that relationship of obligation um, where the employer is expected to take care of their workers and and to prevent, um, you know, harm that comes to the worker in the line of their work. Um, and so Isabel Laurie actually has a really great book called The State of Insecurity and talks about how um, neoliberal governments have like started moving towards using um, insecurity and precarity as a form of like controlling people and governing people. So um, it's becoming more and more prevalent in mm-hmm. work. I would say like most people in like what is called like the quote unquote millennial generation has experienced precarious work. 
in one form or another. Yeah, I think the what you brought up about like the um, government using it in particular, I, I feel it really strongly. I'm working as a public librarian right now as an auxiliary, and our union defines precarious work in a much more like concrete, you know, less philosophical way, which is anybody who is um, not a full-time permanent staff member. So mm-hmm. it, you could be on call like I am, you could be in a temporary part-time or full-time contract, or you could be a permanent part-time worker and they define all those things as precarious. Mm-hmm. And in the city of Burnaby broadly, where I work, um, I've started playing this fun game with people. We can play it now, <laughs> which is people often think of civic, like city, if you work for the city, great job, benefits, blah, blah, blah. But if you were going to guess what percentage of the employees of the city of Burnaby, which I'm not good at remembering numbers, but I, it has like, I think over a billion dollar surplus. Um, what percentage would you guess are precariously employed? 63%. Oh, I, like 80? Probably 80%. I'm going to go with 70 then. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about precarity and you're all guessing very high. When I usually ask people this, they guess like 5 to 10%. Really? And it, no. wow. it, 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 it is 60. Wait, who guesses yeah. though? Are, like, like, like I ask people like, folks, yeah, like my parents, mm. aunts and uncles, stuff mm. like that. Yeah. Um, young, younger people do get, younger people guess funny. higher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's around 60%, which is a lot, I think. I was surprised mm. when I heard that number. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and and I don't know that how that number has changed over time, yeah. but I'm sure I I feel pretty sure that it has gone up. So mm-hmm. yeah. I'm also curious, like wondering, like when an employer doesn't have an op. I'm thinking a lot of academic employers too, especially mm-hmm. like as a student. Um, it feels like the university or just like the, um, the library is balancing giving experiences to, to students, but also um, those experiences don't last very long. And this summer I was just telling um, my sister, like I'm so tired of applying every eight months for a new work, learn job, which has been really beneficial. I've had like a beautiful range of experience, but it's also like every six, every eight months. I'm like, well, I don't know what's gonna happen now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I think that fatigue and Uncertainty, you know, of having to keep applying and hoping that something comes through is definitely part of the part of the issue. Yeah, it's uh, it's also like a filtering process, or, or the institutions use it as a filtering process. I was just reading um, a little bit about the history of professionalization, and they were talking about how, as professions developed, like the concept of a of a of a quote unquote profession of like highly trained, skilled people in a certain specialty area of work. Um, that oftentimes what they would do when they start getting an influx of people like trying to get into the profession is they would you know extend the amount of time that you have to be in school because mm-hmm. the idea the idea quote unquote like in terms of meritocracy is like well only the people who really care are going to be able to make it through the gauntlet of education and and be able to graduate with the certifications needed to work in the professional field but oftentimes what it really means is that those with the most resources the most privilege are the ones who can handle not being employed and making money to like survive um, for a very long period of time and so it, it, it tends to filter out people that they don't want in the profession which historically has usually been women people of color, so forth, right? 
Yeah, and in the last week or so on Twitter, I've been seeing lots of stuff about Dewey and like oh, his yeah. influence oh, yeah. on the profession. I don't know if you guys have seen this stuff, but mm-hmm. also like specifically employing women because they can be paid less. <laughs> he was very efficient about that. I think I was reading about how like he was in a fire, and so his the doctor said his lifespan wasn't very long. I should fact check this later. But then he's like, well, I have to be very efficient, so he like developed the Dewey Decimal System, and then he's like, well, another efficient way is to hire women because you can pay them less, and um, mm-hmm. that's not infuriating. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious about the this research that you're both doing. From what I understand from reading about it, you're doing ca- quite different kinds of research. So I was wondering if you could talk us through a little bit, like how you do the research that you do. Like, what exactly are you looking at around precarity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I can start. Uh, our project is sort of comprised a few different elements, and I'd say it's all sort of based around the general idea of giving voice to people's experiences and just getting more information out there. Uh, definitely our sense is that people are talking about precarity among themselves, but maybe afraid to uh, speak up about it or to make waves and things like that. So we see our project as one way to sort of bring those experiences forward and sort of couch them a little bit in academic language. Uh, but we're also interested in information more broadly. So our two main components to date uh, have been pulling postings from the partnership job board and sort of coding those, looking at, you know, are they on call, are they contract, uh, grabbing a few other things like geography and years of experience that we hope will give us some more information about uh, the demographics of precarious work. And our preliminary analysis has not been super encouraging. Uh, it definitely varies as well by, by geography, by uh, type of work, you know, librarian, technician, manager, et cetera. And then the other component that we've engaged in so far, we just uh, published a paper on that recently. That came out last week, so that's really exciting, is doing semi-structured interviews with people, uh, both folks who have and haven't been precariously employed. We wanted to make sure we got people from a wide range of experiences and backgrounds. So we interviewed about, I think, 13 people and tried to synthesize their, um, their experiences, their answers to our questions into sort of a narrative construction and then use that, that as a basis for um, our discussion, for future uh, actions people can take, and also for future research. So now we're turning to uh, returning to analyzing those job postings, but once that's done, we hope to sort of take what we've learned from each of these two components and maybe put that together into a survey and maybe get a little more statistical saying, you know, people without experience of precarious work are more likely to think it's not that big of a deal, um, perhaps looking at things like that. Cool, thanks. Oh, that's like fascinating, yeah. Like looking at the statisticals. I come from mm-hmm. an anthropological and historical background. My master's is technically in history, even though it's really in archives. Um, so I was trained in kind of like ethnographic and historical mm-hmm. methodologies of research. So um, what I'm looking at is kind of if the whole point of going to school, like library school or archive school, is to become a professional so that you can have access to this field where you can work as a professional and be treated as a professional, like how come so many of us are not being treated as professionals, right? And what does that do to the person? Because um, there's so much of our identity is wrapped up in not only our work, but especially in like information, I, f- I feel like in information circles, like especially libraries and archives, because so much of it is about, you know, 
knowledge and transparency and education and civic duty that mm -hmm. there's so much of our identity wrapped up in the identity of a librarian or an archivist. Like, what does it do when you're treated like temp work constantly, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, that's so I'm looking at it kind of in the historical sense of like, well, how did professionalization develop in archives specifically, you know, in Canada and the US? Um, it's a really recent development. Um, the Society of American Archivists was formed in 1936. Um, the Association of Canadian Archivists was 1975. Mm -hmm. Right, so these are really recent efforts. The first archival, like dedicated archival graduate programs, were like in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Right, and so it's a really young profession, and we were promised in a way that if we professionalize, we will be safer, kind of econ economically, career-wise, and yet that's not happening. And mm -hmm. so, like. I'm kind of looking at like why is it not happening? Like what are the social pressures and the economic pressures that are causing archives and libraries to turn more and more towards precarious work when these are our colleagues that we are doing this to, right? Um, and kind of like I'm still in my second year so I have to pass my qualifying exams and, and then get my proposal accepted before I can even start doing any kind of like original research. but. Um, I'm really hoping to also like interview people, um, look at it ethnographically, and look at mm -hmm. how people are dealing with precarity, and what what is that doing to them as people? You know, like what is it doing to them, and the way that they see the field and the way that they see themselves. But like that's kind of what I'm really interested in. Mm -hmm. So, in the people you've been talking to, Ian, or when you're like planning out what mm -hmm. that might look like, Ted. Um, you mentioned that fear that people have about talking about this issue, and I'm curious if either of you have grappled with that or how that comes up when you raise this topic with colleagues or professors or employers or... Yeah, I think I can say I definitely was a bit more cautious at the beginning, but seeing how uh, reasonably favorably our project has been received, at least within my, my place of work, um, having academic freedom, having... I think relatively supportive managers who you know ask ask questions and make it clear that they're willing to talk about these issues, um, and it feels like you know they're kind of listening or at least aware of them and know that it's you know one of one of many concerns that employees can have. Uh, that's been really good, but it was definitely more I think salient when I worked in public libraries on call um, because you don't have academic freedom, and there's always sort of that fear of like, well, what if I like speak up too much? Will I not get shifts? Things like that. Uh, it's definitely something I've heard from from other people as well, um, but yeah, I think I think that sort of mentality of you know don't make waves, um, sort of don't rock the boat, uh, is definitely prevalent. There's also the sense that if you say anything negative about your job, you're just uh, you're complaining. You're not grateful. You're not a good librarian because you don't buy into like the vocational awe of like how great it is to be a defender of democracy when you work. <laughs> Friday evenings every other week, so so it's kind of um, I, I I think it's important for people to realize that you know you can enjoy your work and also critique some of the uh, structures that are are at play both you know for your own uh, job and for those of other people. Yeah, I think um, in the past it has been um, a much larger um, concern or fear about talking out. Um, a part of it is because that's what precarity does, right? Is it makes it difficult to talk out when you have no guarantee for a job and you're thinking it's so hard to get a job in the first place. Like, mm -hmm. I don't want to lose this. I don't want to, like, you know, piss off somebody and, and then they fire me um, because they can do that very easily when you're in a precarious position. And, um, but I think that's changing. Um, there's been a lot more conversations, at least on the archive side, about precarious labor. Mm -hmm. um, 
there's been uh, the, at the last SIA conference, um, some archivists have started a like a public spreadsheet where you can contribute your salary information um, mm-hmm. to kind of get an idea of like how, what are what are people getting paid and like where and, and what position do you have and, and the disparities and things like that. So that's kind of exciting that there's a lot of like kind of grassroots uh, awareness and organizing work about archival labor. I think that the there's been a real shift in the way that we talk about it and that it's more easy to talk about it without people getting mad. I still kind of get nervous sometimes because I have proposed, you know, um, I just submitted my ACA proposal and um, like basically um, if it gets accepted, like I want to talk about the history of professionalization and specifically like the limits of what professionalization can do for us as a field, um, which is kind of like a nerve-wracking because I'm this like, you know, I'm a second year like archives PhD student like, what do I know? Like, what the hell do I know? But at the same time, like, and I'm, and I'm sitting there, like, calling out, <laughs> like, managers and stuff, like, don't do this to your colleagues, you know? Like, because there's this idea, I think, part of professionalism is, like, this idea that we're all colleagues and we have this collegiate attitude towards each other. But at the same time, you know, who's making these hiring decisions that are putting fellow colleagues in precarious positions, like, career-wise and economically? Like, is that really fair? And And, and it's kind of scary sometimes to call that out because... You know again like who am I like but at the same time I think there has been a shift at least amongst younger archivists who are much more willing to talk about this openly and share information because they've kind of feel like the like the we've kind of reached like a breaking point where people are like I can't really do this anymore I have to talk about mm-hmm. this yeah and I, I can say I've definitely noticed uh, a lot more conversation in the couple of years since we've started our project I think it's interesting that you mentioned that sort of collegiality and and professionalism, um, because I think that can mask a lot of not only class differences, but also just sort of the power structures that are at play, right? Um, Another thing we've heard in our research is sort of the mentality from older or longer-term employees that I had to go through this, I had to earn Mm -hmm. my stripes or whatever, so you should have to do the same. You know, I worked hard to get to where I am today. Um, And so that that kind of mentality that... You know, this is just how it is. It's how you enter the profession. You got to put in your time. Um, but I think that also sort of contributes to that pipeline problem where people get forced out because they just can't or won't put up with it for as long as they need to. Do you think that's true, though, that like earning your stripes is the way? Because then sort of I think that kind of implies that if you don't have to, you know, earn your quote unquote earn your stripes, then we're not working hard. But that doesn't seem to be the case to me at all. Like we all are working really hard. Mm-hmm. So it, it feels like it's hard to imagine something else other than I think the system and just the things that we have already. Yeah, I I think it's so, uh, like, I I, I bristle at that argument because I'm a millennial, right? We hear this a lot from our parents, like, well, you know, I had to work while Mm -hmm. I was going to college, and I still was managed to buy a house, but it's like, you know, purchasing power in 1970 was way higher than it was, than it is now, right? And and 90% of your college was paid for by the state, right? Like, the, the situation has changed so much that even if, like, earning your stripes, quote unquote, is like a good way of you know, building a professional field, which I don't think it is, um, the, the field has changed so much that, like, it's totally different, right? And um, I feel like that's a very, um, I mean, like, 
to put it bluntly, it's a very unprofessional attitude, <laughs> I think. <laughs> if you consider everybody your colleagues and we're, you know, supposed to be colleagues, then the idea that you have to, you know, give your co- your younger colleagues swirlies and haze them, basically, <laughs> so, like the economic version of that, in order for them mm-hmm. to be part of, like, are we a, are we a professional field or are we a fraternity? You know, like, mm-hmm. what what is this idea of, like, well, it was hard for me, so it has to be hard for you. Well, I mean, we used to not have a polio vaccine. That doesn't mean we don't distribute polio vaccines. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it also relates to something that I've seen cited in the work that you and your group do, Ian, is um, the fact that precarious workers are more likely to be marginalized in different ways. Like, their precarious workers are more likely to be women, are more likely to be racialized, are more likely to be LGBTQ+. So I think it you know, that kind of statement and ignores the the pattern that some people end up stuck in precarious work for years and years mm-hmm. and years. And it's not a matter of, oh, yeah, I did that for, you know, six months and then I, you know, got a, a permanent job. Um, yeah. So I, I'm curious if either of you could add more on that, you know, the kind of uh, relationship that this has to whiteness of librarianship as a profession, the over-representation of men in higher-level positions, things like that. Yeah, I think part of it definitely has to do, again, with that, um, that sort of that, that pipeline problem, the selective pressures that start, you know, before, before library school, continue through library school, and then with precarious work sort of afterwards, um, you know, precarious work sort of selects for people with the resources to take it on, and so that tends to be, um, you know, people who have sort of accumulated privilege, um, whether due to being white, uh, due to having sort of, um, I don't know, rich parents, a stable working environment, being straight, cis, all these things. So it's definitely, you know, precarity is just one sort of axis. It definitely needs to be considered, I think, intersectionally and looking at how it relates to other um, sort of other forms of marginalization. Yeah, I think this is an aspect that still is very, Underaddressed. I think like now um, more and more, I think uh, like senior archivists and managers are willing to admit, yes, we have a precarity problem. I think we're still as a field not as willing to admit we have a race problem and we mm-hmm. have a gender problem um, in terms of management um, because archives is also predominantly women now. I think uh, just like uh, librarianship, um, but yeah, we have like a we have like a like a queer sexuality problem. You know, like. We have representational problems. We have problems with uh, lots of uh, archivists of color feeling isolated, um, feeling unwanted, you know, um, constantly having to deal with microaggressions and eventually getting burnt out and leaving the field. And then we wonder, you know, why, why aren't they here, right? And, then, and, the, and the argument often is, well, they just couldn't handle it. Is, is I think, a justification that is often given, right? Like, well, they just weren't dedicated enough like we were, but like, why, right? And um, I think those issues are still things that we are dealing with. Like, for example, at um, the last ALA Midwinter, um, mm-hmm. Robin D'Angelo came and spake, spoke about um, white fragility. And unfortunately, like during that ALA Midwinter, there was a lot of white fragility being on display uh, in librarianship, and it was kind of appalling to watch, um, but also not surprising. I was also curious, because have you heard of, like, diversity residencies mm-hmm. in the U.S.? Yes. I was wondering, um, they're generally, I, th- I think, um, in the U.S., they have these diversity residencies for librarians slash archivists. Um, I think they run, like, a year or two, two or three years, um, usually at an academic um, library. 
Um, they want a diversity fellow. And mm. I think the job descriptions are usually quite broad. Um, you kind of, to me, it looks like you have to do everything. I haven't looked at too many, but, um, <laughs> and I think the point is to help you develop your interests and like, you know, your new fresh grad. Uh, what are you interested in developing, you know, professional workplace skills? Um, yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, is that a good sol a solution or? Does it do more harm than good or? Yeah, I mean, it can't necessarily be a zero sum game of like, you know, it's some good, some bad, right? Uh, but definitely, I guess I don't have thoughts, but I definitely have read thoughts from other people. I know um, April Hathcock has done mm -hmm. uh, some posts on this. I've seen some others. And, um, you know, from people of color, the, the mindset a lot of times is that these diversity re residencies enable institutions to appear diverse, appear progressive, uh, appear like they're sort of fixing the diversity problem. But because it's short term, you're no, not making a long term commitment to these mm -hmm. uh, to these folks, you know, retention and long term success in their profession. Like there's absolutely good aspects to them. Um, I definitely also see people saying they really appreciated their residency. But I've also seen, you know, on, on, on Twitter and elsewhere, folks coming to the end of their residencies and then stressing out about the job search. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely folks talking about residencies that were poorly implemented, poorly planned, maybe some of these, you know, unicorn postings where you want somebody who can do a digital scholarship and like, I don't know, instructional design and also open access, you know, all these, all these different things. Um, so there's a, my sense is that there's a widespread in terms of how they're planned and conceived mm -hmm. and I think definitely the the motivations are good, um, but the results are kind of mixed is a sense I get. Yeah, I think that my biggest fear would be that with these diversity residencies is like, so are you, like how many are you hiring and for these residencies? And like, are you going to try and retain them? Because, or are you just using it as kind of a token? Like, oh, we have like mm -hmm. the token, you mm -hmm. know, librarian of color. And so now we don't have to worry about the situation anymore because we fixed it, right? Because like my question is, is like with a lot of these kind of like there has been growth in diversity scholarships and diversity residencies and these kind of like diversity hirings and things like that. So like my question is like how come after, you know, five, ten years of doing this, the profession is still stubbornly very white, mm -hmm. very, you know, cisgendered and, and hetero heteronormative, right? And so like that would be my question, right, is like, well are these really working if if the, the demographics don't really seem to be shifting all that much? Well, I guess no, because... Yeah, so um, that was like a spicy take. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Some heat for that. I think, I think it's a fair take. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I think if, if we're talking about, like, and it's kind of the same thing with, like, women in tech. Mm -hmm. that I hear a lot about because I have friends in the tech sector where, yeah. you know, they have all these like, oh, it's a pipeline problem. It's not a pipeline problem. I mean, when you look at when you look at the, the demographics of students in library and archive schools and then the profession, there's mm -hmm. a huge difference, mm -hmm. right? It's not a pipeline problem. It's a retention problem. Mm -hmm. So it's, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole thing. Yeah. curious so we in the beginning we talked about um what is precarity mm -hmm. i was just curious like how did this start like how did contract work kind of mm -hmm. like was it always this way 
To an extent, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the reason for the current predicament is neoliberalism, yeah. which I don't know if we've mentioned so far. Today, but <laughs> that's absolutely part of it. Um, but we've, uh, you know, in our, our literature reviews and things like that, uh, we've read scholarship suggesting that, yes, to an extent, you know, precarity has always been around in some form or another. Um, certainly it has a lot to do as well with unpaid and visible labor. So back mm -hmm. when, you know, um, women were traditionally expected to be inside the home and supporting men doing work outside the home, you know, that's, if not a form of precarity, at least a, a, similar, a similar labor issue. Um, but definitely, you know, it's not just a thing that has happened since like the 1970s or whatever. There was a sort of a golden period for some people, i.e. like white middle class, you know, Western sort of sort of folks where there was kind of that standard relation employment relationship. People got benefits. People had good jobs. And so there's nostalgia in some quarters for that time. But we've always had, you know, people of color, um, you know, like migrant workers, things like that, um, you know, people like that experiencing precarity in some form or another. So definitely not new, um, but the forms it takes has, has definitely changed over time. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like, I mean, because I, um, I talk a lot about neoliberalism in my work um, and trying to bring awareness to the way that capitalism has, like, really screwed up a lot of things, especially, mm -hmm. like, neoliberal capitalism. But that's a really good point. Um, I remember I quipped once on Twitter that the modern, the quote-unquote postmodern condition is white people thinking, like, having things that were done to people of color and marginalized communities done to white people and mm -hmm. them thinking that it's the very first time it's ever happened, mm -hmm. right? Like, oh, no, we're all being surveilled. Well, like, you know, like, communities of color have always been surveilled kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. So, but at the same time, yeah, I think, like, things have shifted uh, in the way that work happens um, since the 1970s. There's been, like, an increase, I think, in contract work and this idea of doing away with some of these traditional... Um, traditional employer-employee relationships. Um, neoliberalism is like, I don't know if we've ever defined it. Um, it's like a hard thing to define, but like a really kind of oversimplified basic way is that it's a concept that um, everybody should be re like re responsible for themselves and also be subject to market forces. Um, that like governments also should be subject to market forces. That's why you hear a lot about like, well, we gotta run things like a business, you know? Um, and things gotta pay for themselves, kind of a thing. And but also that you know, like the the, the purest form of relationship is a market relationship um, with not just you and the market, or you and your employer, but with us and other people in society. Um, that there was this kind of a shift in the '70s and the '80s where we start to think as a society, this is a good way of structuring our society. And so you see the way that we relate to each other and to things is purely through like market relationships mm -hmm. and market logic right um i think a lot of people like when they think of capitalism they think oh like profit like you know like the the profit imperative or markets or you know money um, but all of those have existed before capitalism capitalism is fundamentally like about our relationship with things our relationship with property our relationship with other people right and so there's this idea that we need to allow the market to control the way we relate to each other. But the problem is, as we, I think most of us know, is like archives and libraries have traditionally not really been under a lot of market forces. Like we're usually public institutions um, that were seen as like a good, like a public good that needs to be shared. Um, and what happens when you take something like that is not supposed to be profitable and you have to try to make it profitable, right? 
And I think that's a, the part of the reason why libraries and archives have started turning to precarious work because it helps them look profitable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really comes down to sort of economic efficiency and prioritizing that over workers' needs. Um, you know, definitely everyone's always sort of concerned about austerity and budgets and things like that. So it's doing more with less, um, but, you know, it's doing more work or the same amount of work with less, less fulfilling and sort of less uh, respectful jobs, I think. Mm -hmm. And I feel when I'm doing public service work in the library that also it undermines our ability to do what we're supposed to do really well mm -hmm. when people are in precarious positions because of the kind of um, material and psychological effects that, um, that you two spoke about earlier, right? Like, I don't know the community that I work in as well as I would if I was working in the same branches every day or every week, stuff like that. Um, so I don't have as strong relationships with people and I'm not able, almost all of the time that I work is spent on desk. So mm -hmm. there's very little time to reflect on things that happen or to process emotionally experiences that occur, all that kind of stuff. So it, I think it really undermines what we're supposed to be doing and how um, public libraries anyways, and I think mm -hmm. it's the same for other kinds of libraries and archives want to be serving people in a really thoughtful, considerate way. Um, I'd like to shift us towards like, what are some of the things we can do about precarious work? And I think that this also ties in a lot with what you two have just been talking about, about the relationships to neoliberalism and capitalism and the ways that precarious work um, has a long history in communities of color and in other kinds of work where people have um, been taking action and resisting it for a really long time. So I'm curious what you see as some of the things librarians and archivists could be doing, whether it's, you know, rank and file people or unions or managers, members of the public, patrons whose service is being undermined by this kind of work. What are some of the things you'd like to see happen? Yeah, I think there's there's definitely a need for action just beyond research. Uh, I was reading a really good article recently just talking about neoliberal ways of knowing and things like that, and it just made the point that it's not enough to, to analyze these things or to do research projects on them. You also have to really translate that into action because otherwise you just end up sort of having that knowledge and not really, not really doing anything with it. So we've talked a lot about research, but um, definitely one interest of, of, for myself and our, our research team is how can we translate that into action? So it's something we're still, we're still sort of figuring out on our end and mm -hmm. um, looking at examples of where it's successfully been changed elsewhere. I think a lot of the, uh, a lot of the change just has to come through collective action. Uh, I don't think managers and administrators are as motivated to do <laughs> anything about it. Um, because, you know, they're in positions of power, they're concerned perhaps with economic efficiencies, you know, the budget, things like that. Um, and so a lot of the changes I've seen have come from unions. For instance, I think VPL recently did away with sort of auxiliary positions and is at the least moving towards shorter term contracts, uh, which have their pros and cons. You know, it's kind of, you can be sort of temporarily stable or sort of permanently unstable with the on-calls, but, you know, there's like, um, it's, you know, poison, personal, yeah. personally my preference is for, for contract work just because at least, you know, you know what's coming, you know how much money mm -hmm. you're going to get, and you can sort of plan around that. So things like that. Um, 
But at the same time, you know, it's kind of difficult because especially as an on-call worker, you know, I was never motivated or really wanted to be involved in unions because it's like, you know, it's kind of, I'm working at three different places. There's three different unions. Uh, am I really able to affect change? So I think definitely people with stable permanent positions need to step up for those who are precariously employed, who maybe can't uh, speak up for themselves and advocate as much. I think that's definitely uh, one thing I'd like to see. Yeah, I, it's a, such a multifaceted problem. I have so many thoughts about this. Uh, I think, like, you know, as a good information scholar, like, I'm like, information's always good. Like, sharing information is good. I think, like, for example, that spreadsheet with the salaries, um, I think, is a really good start. Um, sharing that kind of information so that you don't feel so alone. Because I think part of what precarity does is it isolates mm -hmm. you. You just think, like, am I the only person who's, like, feeling like this? Especially in a... In a, in a field like libraries or archives where there's so much vocational awe, mm -hmm. right? Like where you're supposed to be grateful, you're supposed to sacrifice because you're a servant of the community and stuff like that. But like at the same time, you're treated as a number, right? In a spreadsheet, in a budget, and uh, without any of the privileges that come with that idea of vocational awe, right? Um, so like I think sharing information is always good. Talking about this is always good. But like, like you said, uh, Ian, it, it has to translate into some kind of action. I think what makes this such a thorny problem is that it's an intersection of so many things, right? I think one of the things that professionalism has done um, that I think we need to start pushing back against is this idea that a professional needs to be apolitical, right? Because they're not supposed to take sides. But at the same time, archives and libraries have been eviscerated, you know, budget-wise, culturally, you know, in our society by bad faith actors and governments. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's time that we kind of have to start pushing back against that um, because it's not in our best interest to stay politically inactive. Um, like, for example, I think a lot about how I'm not in, in as connected to librarians um, because I've started in archives, but I've noticed that, you know, like lots of libraries have started becoming kind of like the last community center in a city, in a large urban city. Um, and in rural areas as well, right? Like they're kind of the last functioning civic institutions in in kind of the post, uh, like post Cold War neoliberal democratic governments, right, and um, and that librarians have started taking on a, like a ton of responsibilities that look a lot more like social work than librarianship, and um, that I feel like a lot, of, a lot of librarians kind of go with it because they're like, well, I'm a servant of the community, right, and and so if this is a new kind of set of obligations that I also have to juggle with on top of all the other things that I'm doing, then I guess we have to do that. But of course it's unsustainable and it's also not fair to librarians, right? But in order to like deal with these kind of systemic problems of the fact that libra libraries have become social work centers um, is to deal with the fact that a lot of the social safety nets that used to exist um, have disappeared. So like should librarians start pushing for these kinds of things like it, politically, like I mean, I think that's really up to like the librarian to decide, but I, but I do think we need to reconsider the way that we have traditionally considered like the professional to be an apolitical person, right? Because clearly, like we are part of a society mm -hmm. and that is political, and the politics that happen in that society are affecting us and the way that we can do our work, like outside of the field too, right? Like we can't just think of everything in the context of libraries and archives, like, oh, how does this affect the library and the archive? Like we have to think about like the broader society, right? It's a lot to take in. <laughs> <laughs>
well, I was also curious about, like, because, Ted, you come from the U.S., so mm-hmm. I was curious, like, if you've noticed, like, are there any differences or similarities between, um, yeah, I guess, across North America, like, how is it the same or not? Yeah, so I think a really big difference, something that I was really kind of surprised, to be totally honest, uh, when I came out to Canada, because I am from the U.S., um, is that most archivists, I think, are part of a union. Um, because they, and it depends on the institution, like there's no archivist union, as much as I would love for there to be like a <laughs> trades union for archivists. Um, there isn't one, but like most archivists uh, work for some kind of public institution, so whether it's academic or the city or, or, or the province or the federal level, like they're working for some kind of institution, so they belong to a union for like that sector of workers. Whereas in the U.S., like, that is just not a thing, right? Like, unions mm-hmm. are not a thing anymore in the U.S. That's starting to change, which is good, but, like, I don't even know. I, I would have to ask, like, my colleagues in the U.S., like, if any of them belong to a union at all. And and I, maybe some of them do in terms of, like, if they work in the like, public government, um, they might be part of, like, a public worker sector union, but that I think that's pretty rare. And so that changes the way that you can kind of push for change in the U.S. The, can- the Canadian archival system is also a little bit more connected because they tried to do that whole total archives thing. So it was more coordinated. They had that legacy of coordination as haphazard as it was during the <laughs> 1970s, right, and into the 1980s. And um, so I think there's a little bit more of a connectedness amongst archives and cooperation amongst archives in Canada, whereas in the U.S. we have 50 states. Every state does their state archives differently, and then you have NARA, and, and NARA is like trying to like do stuff for the federal level, and it's like hurting a bunch of cats, and uh, everybody's going in different directions, and so like it's harder, I think, to pull together some of that collective action. Though I think that is changing, um, thankfully. But yeah, like there, it is different between the U.S. and Canada. There's some pretty stark differences in the ways that archivists work, right, and and relate to work. Yeah, I also imagine it must be quite isolating. A lot of the ar- people that I know that we were in libraries and archival school with that are working now as archivists are the only archivist in their workplace compared to a lot of the people I know who are working in libraries. Like, I got hired with, like, four other people from my grad class at the library I work at. Yeah, we have, like, a slang for it, too. Like, we call it the lone arranger. It's, uh, it's very <laughs> um, The fact that we have a slang for it shows how common it is. Yeah. Though. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is kind of like one of the also cultural differences between libraries and archives. Like, and you can kind of see it is that in archive school, like we were very kind of like writing our own papers. We didn't do a lot of group projects and things like that. But in like library schools, like all group oh projects. Oh is it ever? <laughs> and I think it's because there's a more of an expectation in library world that you're going to be working in groups, so you have to learn to work in a group. Mm-hmm. Whereas with archivists, we're kind of more expected to be able to work by ourselves. You might have like a small team, but that's pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, like, if if you guys have put any thought into solutions or ways of, like, other ways that we might imagine redesigning work, like, if we were going to go even broader in this conversation beyond, like, you know, people would like permanent positions, people would like full-time positions. I feel like we rarely ever get to the point in a conversation about work where it's like, actually, you know, what else would make this better? I mean, dismantling capitalism. Dismantling capitalism. (laughs) That's always a good start. Yeah. Just kind of destroying the (laughs) logic. I think what kind of makes um, things so exhausting for Mm -hmm. archivists and librarians is that we are expected to engage 
in that kind of like public servant role. And I think it would actually be a lot easier to do that. I think people would be more willing. I mean, like most people who go into libraries and archives go in because they want to help other people. They want to help other people learn about things. Um, I don't think most people do not go into libraries and archives for money. I mean, I know I told a story in the beginning about how I went to archives because <laughs> I saw the master's program had like an 84% <laughs> job placement rate, but like most people did not go into, and now I'm a PhD student. So well, like it's funny because Jennifer but. Douglas, like she says that at the beginning of every year with her MAS cohort, she likes to just kind of survey everyone and think like, huh, these students didn't come here because of money. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so... Yeah, I think it, that says something interesting about the people who yeah. who come to this program and to this profession. Yeah, and I think that capitalism forces us to think about money, right? And we tend to think of, like, th- libraries through the concept of money and archives through the concept of money, right? Like, how can I translate this in a way that makes sense to the people paying us to do this work, right, so that it, we look profitable? And so we come up with, like, different concepts of profit that aren't money but are money you know like and it's just mm-hmm. I think if we didn't have to do that dance like we could actually function more effectively as like public institutions um, mm-hmm. because I think there'd just be more bandwidth like emotional bandwidth mental bandwidth mm-hmm. um, where we can where we want to do that kind of thing again as opposed to seeing it as like free volunteer work that I have to do in order to advance my career kind of a thing mm-hmm. Yeah, I think precarity is pretty good at occupying that emotional mm-hmm. and, and mental and sometimes even physical bandwidth just yeah. with, uh, you know, people's fear of taking sick days or things like that because that might mean honestly losing money and you don't have benefits. I'm concerned about solutions to precarity sort of being co-opted by by neoliberalism and sort of reclaimed. So, you know, it's we, we, I think we sort of have to look at the, the, the both the means and the ends. I think, um, you know, encouraging people to consider precarity in light of the costs to humans can be can be helpful for some audiences like you might just have to put it in neoliberal terms and just sort of say like um, wouldn't you like your organization to run better <laughs> wouldn't you like your human resources to be more finely tuned and more productive and efficient and like all those buzzwords but ultimately you know I'm not talking about precarity with the goal of just you know making everything run the same as, as it always has been just sort of you know changing the status quo slightly. Um, But I think, yeah, capitalism is good at sort of co-opting and sort of absorbing protest back into itself. Mm -hmm. And so that's definitely an ongoing question for me is how to to sort of address this issue and how to build capacity and engage in collective action within uh, the sort of neoliberal framework that we all reside in. Mm -hmm. I think uh, one thing that I would love to see that is connected to precarity is um, there has also been an increase in talk amongst archivists about secondary trauma. Mm-hmm. Like history is really messy and that's what we usually deal with. And so like a lot of times we have to process historical records that can be really disturbing um, and really like depressing really. Um, and that that has an effect on archivists. Um, and there has been more of a talk about, you know, how do we deal with secondary trauma? How can we provide you know, mental health resources for archivists who have to process really difficult materials? Um, how can we talk about this in a more humane way and do this work in a more humane way for the archivists themselves? Um, and it is related to precarity because oftentimes that really emotionally difficult work is done by people in precarious positions, right? Um, and so you have, it's the student workers who, while they're processing material, run across a bunch of like, you know, white supremacist material or like really racist or sexist material mm-hmm. or like, um, 
uh, yeah, I mean, just it's just like hard stuff that you have to deal with, and then you have to go home and process it somehow. And it's been it's a thing that's been very common in the archives. Like I think almost every archivist has a story, even you know like seasoned archivists have dealt with a lot of this but like it just has been a thing that we've never talked about until very recently I think maybe in the last couple of years there's been like an opening so that, that's a uh, I guess like a work-related issue that I would, I would love to see us also move into to talk about it's just like you know this is hard and some of this stuff is traumatizing and we should be able to talk about it openly mm-hmm. and getting to a point where we can talk about those kind of collections and and what they represent in our history collectively too I think takes mm-hmm. so much work and energy and um, I, Karen we both talked about this a bit last summer dealing with some stuff like that in the co-op jobs that we had where it's mm-hmm. like you know there are these collections that are identified as problematic but I'm only here for four months and I can get to a certain point of thinking through this or addressing it and then I'm passing it off to who knows who will come next or if there'll be another student for I don't know when um, that will continue that work and so actually getting to a point where they can be yeah like where something can happen to change how they're described or presented or how they're made available something like that is a problem that I feel like they can just gets kicked further and further down the road sometimes it feels like um, we're starting to talk a lot more about care in terms of care of records and then um, the people who um, like the people from which these records come from and then the people that are going to be using this but I guess less so care like of the person processing um, these materials mm-hmm. um, and I was also curious about the platforms for talking about and like raising um, attention to these things because I was also thinking of conferences and how they're very expensive um, they're not super accessible but they do seem to be they do to me. They seem like they market that like mark conferences, especially academic ones, um, are kind of like the space for us to talk about these things. Um, but then also just who gets to go? Like they are very expensive. So, do contract workers get the opportunity to go? Like who gets to talk about these things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, who's in the room? I can say uh, I was sort of gratified to see last year some conferences having special rates for students and precariously employed. Uh, workers, so sort of making that distinction was really cool, and you know you still have to pay, but it's less. And so seeing that recognition from like conference organizing committees was really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's a really good point about like the platforms that we used to talk about this because you're right. Like uh, a lot of this cutting edge quote unquote research on you know archives and libraries is done at and presented at conferences, but they're so inaccessible, and mm-hmm. you just kind of have to hope that the conference is going to like publish some kind of proceedings or something. And even then, the proceedings are often in like academic journals, which have paywalls and things like that. So it's like really hard to access. Um, I think that's why. Um, so like. I really enjoy, it's actually Ask an Archivist Day today yeah. while we're recording, mm. and so like <laughs> I really enjoy Archives Twitter. Um, it can be really rowdy sometimes, but at the same time, it's a place where a lot of people are sharing um, their experiences and having these conversations, so I think um, like social media platforms are also like mm-hmm. a good place to kind of find other people and talk about things, but at the same time, we shouldn't be relying on you know social media, like as a profession, mm-hmm. we should be talking about it this mm-hmm. kind of stuff openly and in a more accessible way um, because I think what's really sad about, like one of the saddest things I think about precarious work outside of like the fact that it just really sucks to be a precarious worker is um, like Ian mentioned, like there's just so much bandwidth that gets taken up um, when you're a precarious worker 
there's so much energy and excitement about this work, I think, in amongst especially like younger librarians mm-hmm. and archivists that just gets sucked up and and uh, wasted in terms of like try, just trying to survive. And I think that if we were able to give a lot of these entry level positions that kind of room for um, our younger archivists and librarians to focus their energy not on surviving but on like improving the stuff that's happening around them, we could see some real progress in the way that this profession um, and also just the everyday institutions are run. Um, but unfortunately, we're spent spending far too much time and energy just trying to survive. Before we go, could we ask you both to share with us if people want to learn more about your work or what you're up to or whatnot, should they go follow you on Twitter? Sounds like you're both very active on Twitter. How do how do how do people find you? I'm just at Teo T E I O H. Um, like I I should post a lot on Twitter. <laughs> we look forward to it. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I think that because I right now I haven't really like. I'm still working on, you know, passing my quals and, like, publishing. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where a lot of my thoughts go out to. But, like, hopefully I'll have some stuff coming out soon. But, um, yeah, if you want to follow my work, that's probably the best place. I greatly that. enjoyed your thread about precarity and capitalism. So yeah. other people can go find it and enjoy that, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, yeah, for myself, uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm not super active. It's mainly just posting ill-advised instructional memes at this point. <laughs> but my research team does have a Twitter. It's at LIS Precarity. And so that's where we post and retweet um, stuff about our work, other research articles we see on precarity. And the idea is just to sort of be a, be a sort of connective hub for all the people out there who are sort of talking about and interested in this issue. And so um, like the response on that account has been really gratifying. And then, yeah, people can you know look me up. My name is, is very unique. Uh, so, you know, I'm all over the internet. If you just Google me, it's fine. You can probably find someone <laughs> contacting me. Uh, my Twitter's up there, too. It's at Ryan with Zinger. Basically. I, I, would, I would put in a solid second in following LIS Precarity on Twitter because they do some really interesting good work. And honestly, if you're listening to this podcast and you find the subject interesting, you probably don't want to see, like, my Pokemon memes. You probably want to <laughs> follow LIS Precarity. You probably want both. But thank you both so much yeah. for joining thank us you. today. Yeah, thank you. I learned a lot. This was really yeah, interesting. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank to you. seeing where both your research goes.